Let us pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A couple of announcement reminders coming up next Sunday, Church Family Sunday. So one service at 9.30, uh, followed by regular fellowship and, uh, and Sunday school Bible study. So uh, on, on All Saints Day, we remember we're joined together as, a, as one church, not only on this side of heaven, but also joined together with all the saints uh, in heaven. So we'll talk more about saints and stuff next week, but just, uh, just to keep that on the front of your mind, one service next week, 9.30, followed by a Bible study and, fellow, uh, Bible study and fellowship. It's the main announcements I wanted to mention. Today is uh, the Reformation. So just a couple words about that, and then I've got high hopes of actually finishing chapter 13 already. Like, at least that's what, the, that's what the handout has laid out for us. So um, I don't want to get too distracted by the Reformation, but I, I, it's, worth, it's, worth, it's worthy of note. <laughs> um, so just, to, I mean, how, where do you want to, how do you want to approach this? Um, there is a, there's a couple ways to think about being a Lutheran. There's like a cultural, like a cultural Lutheran. Like who's familiar with, if I said Lake Wobegon? What's that, who's that guy, Tom? Garrison Keeler. So Garrison Keeler is the like the quintessential picture, not just him, but like the his radio show and his jokes about Lutheranism. It, it's uh, it's like this ideological look at a a people who have certain exterior habits, or like um, they drink bad coffee out of small styrofoam cups. Check. They like to sit in the back at services. Check. Then there's a lot of stereotypes that are really um, mostly descriptive of like Norwegian um, or German people of that, of that area. So hard work, good work ethic, typically quiet and reserved, stubborn, like all these kind of characteristics, which most of us can probably associate with in some way. Um, so to be Lutheran for some people, it's it just, it's a flavor of American Christianity or historic global Christianity that has these, these little slight habitual nuances that we make jokes about, like sitting in the back. And we like, we stand up and sit down in our worship a lot, which is annoying if you don't like that. You know, we, we worship in a certain, we have our pew. Um, which interestingly enough, when you talk to people from other church bodies, or if you've come out of a, church, a different church body in your adult life, a lot of those, a lot of what we think is a joke unique to Lutheranism, it's true for like everybody else. Most people don't like to sit in the front. A lot of people are drawn to sitting in the back. Uh, there's, there's a lot of those, those characteristics, but to, at its core, when we say I am a Lutheran, we want to kind of fight through. I think the, the best service that we can do to Luther is to not even address him because he wouldn't have wanted it that way. The point of the Reformation is to cut through the human side of stuff and focus on the Word of God. That was his primary critique. It's the human institution of the, the clearly man-made institution of the church where it was stepping over the clear inspiration of Scripture. 
So when the scriptures are saying clear things like we're saved by grace alone, not because of anything we can do, we don't have the power to save ourselves. It's a clear picture of salvation that we kind of, we almost take it for granted. We, so, we know it so well. Um, but when the church steps up and says, no, you have to do something to be saved or to be certain of your salvation, and, and this entire system of purgatory where a person is able to um, buy leftover merit. We talk about this every year, but maybe it's, it's helpful to, think, to remember the whole concept. This is, this is a broad, um, cons- overly concise treatment of purgatory. But the idea is you only get into heaven. You don't, you, you don't go to heaven just because you believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus gets you out of hell. So believing in Jesus gets you out of hell, but not into heaven. See the difference? So if you want to get into heaven, you have to be pure because only purified things are in heaven. And you can make, you can, you can grab some scripture verses to support that view. Like in Revelation 7, the saints in heaven are wearing white robes. They're pure. They're holy, the holy ones. So we recognize that to be a holy one, as we'll talk about next week, is to be covered in the blood of Christ. That's what makes us holy. But if you're, if you're in your system, you're thinking, I'm holy according to either my own avoidance of sin and my own accumulation of works, then if I don't have enough to get into heaven, then what happens to me? I need to be purified. And, and how do you purify things? Heat. Hence purgatory. So fortunately, people like um, St. Peter, St. Paul, Mary, uh, they, they had, you only have to be this tall to get into heaven with good works. But Mary and Peter and Paul, I mean, they're like off the charts. They have got extra. So if we take, if this is the line for heaven, and Mary and Peter and Paul and Jesus, I mean, if you've got works, all these extras, we're, gonna, we're just going to kind of lop off all this extra good works and put it in a treasury of merit, a big a box. And we'll be able to take the extra merit and you can buy it. You can buy it for your, for your dead loved ones who are probably in purgatory right now, suffering. And it's terrible down there. And right now you can actually get them out of that suffering by throwing a couple extra bucks in the plate. You know, the uh, coffer, uh, coffer in the, what's, how's it go? A coin in the coffer springs, a, rings. A coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So you can, so we, we, we kind of like jump to the end and say, you can buy your way into heaven. And that's basically true, but you, it's important to remember that middle step, that it's not saying that I don't need Jesus. If it's not for Jesus, you go straight to hell. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. So Jesus gives you out of hell, unless you've committed certain sins, which then you're done for, but you still need to be purified. So you have to, we have to hit the line. So I can, take, I can take my money and buy the extra. I can, I can accumulate the merit of others. Hence the entire, the entire system of indulgences developed along with this, the existence of purgatory. So we kind of walk into this with the scriptures and saying, hold on a second. Not only does buying your way into heaven not really work, but what's the, where is this purgatory place again? So we have certainly have issues with it. And for us, our concern is we're, we're looking at the, the scriptures, the, the pure and simple word of God that says, 
These aren't, these are really, these are not there. And if, and this is Luther's point, if I, if I have to do anything or put any money in the plate or anything like that, then it wasn't finished when Jesus said it was finished. So we're, we're adding these things to salvation for me to get above the line. We're adding these things that, that are dependent upon me. And if it's dependent upon me, then I have no certainty of salvation because that's where I'm going to mess it up. So the law comes, if I think I need to, I need to be good to be, to be saved or, or avoid a certain amount of evil works, what's the law's primary purpose? To show me my sins. So if I'm, if I'm looking at my life and trying to figure out if I've been good enough to be saved or to get out of purgatory, I'm looking at my life and what tool do I have to measure whether or not I'm good or bad? The law. And what's the law always do? Show me my sins, condemns. So there, I can never actually be comforted by looking at myself and trying to determine if I'm going to be good enough. Because as soon as I take the law and hold it up against my life, it's going to show weakness. If, I, if it doesn't, I'm actually doing it wrong. Think of the Ten Commandments are always requiring more of us than we're able to give. So it's not just, for example, in the fifth commandment, don't hurt your neighbor in his body, so don't, don't kill him, but also help and support him in every physical need, every physical need. So if your neighbor's hungry, if you can think of anybody now in any kind of need, then the law is requiring of you to give of yourself to them. And if you satisfy that neighbor, there's gonna be another. There's going to be another. It's never going to stop. The law is always saying you can't do it on your own. It's got to be all Jesus. So at its, at its core, the Reformation message is that, that we can't do anything to be saved on our own. It's all Jesus alone. And anything, anything dependent upon us robs us of the certainty, certainty of salvation and really brings the fear of hell. So Luther kind of came to that revelation. He's got a couple of key points, as he recalls later in life. But at one point, he had gone back to Rome. He was like taking the offerings from their monastery. And he's up, he's going, he's at Rome, and there's like these steps, steps of saint, somebody. And you could go up the, the steps on your knees, and there's like, I don't know, 100 steps. And every step you pray a Lord's Prayer, and then when you get to the top, then you get one year out of purgatory for whom you, you went through that process. And so Luther does it a few times and he starts to think, wait a second, how do I know this works? I'm trusting the, this Pope and then already the whole system's starting to crumble because he's, he's, seeing corruption, he's seeing corruption because humans are sinful. And so, wait a second, this, this guy who's telling me to do this thing, who seems to be motivated by, potentially motivated by like monetary ends, is telling me to do something that the Bible doesn't really talk about and it's promised me I could get into heaven by, ah, I don't know about this. And so he starts asking the question, where is this, I'm looking for certainty here, where is this surely saying, where is it saying this in the Bible with certainty? And they're pointing to church history but the fathers c contradicted themselves in various places on these points. 
such as purgatory and indulgences, which are relatively in later medieval history when that stuff starts popping up. So Luther's starting to quote the fathers from earlier in church history that are kind of like trumping the later. And so he would have just been killed by, for questioning this, which happened to um, a lot of reformers who had come before him with the exact same critique. And we, I know we talked about this at Theology on Tap last week, but Luther was able to pull this off both because he was protected by his local elector, Frederick, is protecting him from uh, the emperor stepping in and saying, just kill that guy. Because remember, the Pope was behind all this. The Pope can kind of puppet the emperor. Because what can the Pope say to the emperor? You're condemned. Your sins are not forgiven. And so ultimately the Pope is on top and could say to the emperor, ride in and kill Luther. But fortunately, this is where God is using evil, ultimately taking up evil and using it for good purposes. The Muslims are invading the Roman Empire, the, the Roman Catholic areas. And so they needed Germany to be, to be a united front. And so if, they, if, they intercede, if the emperor stepped in and went after Luther, you're gonna have a divided Germany and we need them to be fighting together against the Muslims. So the emperor kind of stopped listening to the Pope, which was helpful because it let Luther live a little bit longer. Granted, they had to like kidnap him and get him out of there. Um, and then Gutenberg's press has been is, is recently invented. And so all the stuff that Luther's writing is just getting cranked out, spreading all over Europe. So it's not, it wasn't easy to silence quickly as it was for earlier reformers. Um, so then, I mean, Luther, we, we, we get the famous here I stand which is the, the Luther's speech from the Diet of Worms where, he's, where he says, and, and they ask him to con condemn or to, to deny, that's not the word either, to, to reject all the works, to revoke all the works that he had put together. And he's looking at these works and he's saying, you know, there's a few things in here where I probably spoke harsher than I should have, which if you've ever read Luther, that's like 90% of everything he says. <laughs> It's very fun to read because he's, he's so direct and at times uh, crass or cruel or whatever. Um, he's, he's, he's a master of reductio ad absurdum, so he, he drives every argument to its conclusion. And so he, he's, he would just be able to say, if this is true, then this crazy thing is also true. So he's looking at his works and say, okay, there's bits and pieces of these that I can revoke. But ultimately the spirit behind like everything I've written is, that, is the gospel. So if you're telling me to revoke what I've written here, you're telling me to revoke the gospel itself, which I cannot do. So unless you convince me by the scriptures and reason, then I can't revoke this stuff. Here I stand, God help me. And he turns around and he waits for the arrows to just, it took a lot of courage to get to where he, to, to get to where he was. And ultimately he was, kidnapped shortly thereafter, and then his life was able to be spared as the Reformation kind of pressed forward. So at the heart of the Reformation, it's not this, it is not a cultural Lutheranism, like this ideology of, of Lutheranism that we're trying to bring people into. Um, he wasn't attempting to change the church to, to, to mimic his, his view of things. He's actually looking at the church historic and saying the gospel was clear and then in the last like few hundred years, the gospel has been corrupted by these weird ideas. And so he's saying, no, you, you, we have to be preaching the gospel clearly. Now in American Lutheranism, and in the last 100, 100 or so years, we have this interesting dynamic too, where if typically, I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's the case up here in, in the North, mid, wherever we are, Midwest, 
where Lutherans and Catholics are like the main, I mean, especially probably in the 80s and 90s, now the non-denomination or, or unchurch are also on the rise. But a lot, of, a lot of Lutherans might distinguish themselves as being Lutheran. So if someone asks you, so what's a Lutheran? You're like, well, I don't really know. I just know I'm not Catholic because they're the worst. Why? I don't know. And so that's like this blind ideological view of Lutheranism that's rejecting this like ad hominem, like I don't know why I'm not Catholic. I don't know what's the problem. But then any kind of, any kind of thought that a person has of what they think Catholic is. So if you think Catholic is not about doctrine, that is the teaching, the core teachings of the faith that were the problem, but if you don't get that and you think the problem with the Catholics, it wasn't about the core doctrine, it was about all these externals. Like baptism, the way we do that. Uh, the Lord's Supper, oh wait, we do that too. Confession absolution, we do that, but not private confession absolution because that's Catholic. No, wait, it's, that's how Jesus actually gave pastors. He sent them out to forgive sins. In fact, private confession is the ideal but it also counts in the corporate setting. Um, but then we get all the other liturgical things that the church had always done, vestments, crucifixes, processions, making the sign of the cross, all these, these external things these, that, we, that we can do just fine. Uh, those aren't what makes a church Catholic. The externals is not the thing. The thing is ultimately the doctrine. And then the clinging to some of these externals wrongly as, um, as somehow meritorious for salvation. So like in our church, for example, we're quite liturgical. We're certainly not as liturgical as some, but a lot of things that we do, I've had, I've had people um, yelling is over, firmly um, instructing me that the way that we're worshiping is, is Catholic. So I'm like, what do you mean by that? Well, I know the Catholic church down the street and they do the same thing. Well, do they pray to Jesus too? Can we, do we have to stop doing that? Where's the line? What makes, a, what makes an outward practice problematic? You strip away all the things that you think are, are, um, are problematic because they're external. You're gonna throw out baptism and the Lord's Supper and confession absolution too, just like the, the, some of the later reformers did. What we know today is like the Zwinglians, uh, they, they were the enthusiasts who believed that the Holy Spirit worked directly apart from means. Luther would say that the enthusiasts had swallowed the Holy Spirit, feathers and all. That they believed that the Holy Spirit is just, it's all about me and, how, and I can determine how God works toward me. Right? We're holding the scriptures and saying, wait a second, this says baptism saves me and that the, Holy, that, that the Lord forgives my sins and in the Lord's Supper. And then he sends out pastors to forgive sins and what we call absolution. This seems pretty earthy, physical to me. So those things characterize our, the, central of our, the centrality of our, of our Lutheran worship experience, but then also a lot of the other liturgical pieties that a church might choose to add to it is done in Christian freedom, only because we would say that it helps extol the gospel. So for example, we start, we have a crucifix and we start with a procession, just like the Catholics. That doesn't make it wrong. It's not problematic. In fact, it's great that the Catholics are doing that. If they, if they even do, because it reminds everybody there why we're here. It's about Jesus on the cross. So even if their pulpit is messing up the gospel, it's hard to ungospelize Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, right? 
So when we get together for worship, why are we here? Because we all want to hear what the pastors have to say. No, we're walking in behind the dead guy on the cross. We preach Christ crucified. That's why we're here. So we're holding out for everybody to see. And some people choose to reverence it in physical awe of that God is making himself present here. And that's fine. And some people don't, and that's fine too. That's totally done in Christian freedom. Making the sign of the cross, same deal. Um, the movies popularize certain external habits of the Catholic Church, like making the sign of the cross, right? That's not, Luther says in his catechism, when you, make up in the, when you wake up in the morning, make the sign of the cross, why? To remember our baptism. Why? Because of, the sign of the cross was put on you when you were baptized. Does it save? Does it do anything? No. Except for it, if it helps you remember your baptism, that's pretty significant. So we, get, we don't want to get wrapped up in the, the external, the, the, the misguided conversation that to be Lutheran is to be Catholic minus all, all of their external worship practices. Wait a second. No, no, no. The external, the, don't get wrapped up in the external worship practices. What's at the heart of it? It's about the role of works and your salvation, your ability your ability to do anything to save yourself. Do you have the ability or not? And for the Lutheran confessing, it's no, I'm born sinful. I'm, surely I was conceived sinful and unable to do. I can't even want to be as good as I have to be. That's how deep my sin goes. It's not just that I do sin, but I am fully corrupted. And so that I cannot choose to do good except by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the Catholic system of things, and I mean, we'd say most of a modern day evangelicalism, it allows for a free will within the individual to say, I have within me the, un, the uncorrupted capacity to choose to do good. And therefore, the, the task of the church is to try to motivate you to capitalize on that and steer your will toward doing good, making a good decision for Christ, having a good life of following good works. We're saying, I don't have the ability to choose good. My sin is, I'm fully, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him as we confess in the third article of the creed. I cannot, I believe that I cannot believe. If it's up to me, I, can do, I can't even believe the gospel. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit does anything good follow. So that's, that's the heart is the, what is the will's capacity to do good? So you get this, the external argument made by like in my, in my childhood growing up in the South, the Baptist worship style is very anti-liturgical and um, where it's just the spoken word is the kind of the centerpiece of their services. So if you're looking, if you're looking from the outside at a, at a Catholic worship experience and a Baptist worship experience, they're very, 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 they look very different. And Luther said, that they're actually two wolves tied at the tail or a two-headed dragon. He uses that analogy in two different places where they look different. They have two different heads, but they're ultimately tied at the core. And the core is the will's capacity to do good. So while they worship seemingly different externally, the, that's not the problem. The problem is what's, what's happening underneath. 
So then the, that's where the Lutherans stand so differently with this, this confession of our, how deep our original sin goes. And because our, our sin goes so deep, that's actually how much greater the Savior is. So he has to do all the work because I can do none of it. And to be fair, most of your Catholic relatives and, and evangelical relatives, and so most of them would probably give that same confession to which I say, great, you're a Lutheran. Stop going to the Catholic church, right? It's true, <laughs> um, but maybe unhelpful rhetoric. But uh, that's, if a person is able to give their amen to the, the simplicity of the gospel there, that I cannot, I cannot by my own reason or strength or ability do any kind of good, and it's all because of Jesus, um, then you're Lutheran. And what does that mean? Well, it means I'm a, I'm a Christian who believes the gospel. The word Lutheran was a derogatory term given by the Catholics against those German psychos that are destroying the church over in Germany who are following that Luther guy. And Luther the whole time is saying, stop looking at me and look at the gospel. Any questions or comments on the Reformation? I already spoke longer than I maybe planned to today. Um, next week, All Saints Day. So the church is always forced to make a tough call. You've got October 31st is the night. It's All Hallows' Eve, which people would have been coming to church on All Hallows' Eve, the night before All Saints Day, and then certainly on All Saints Day. So in Saints, if, if my under, historical understanding is, is correct, all, all Hallows' Eve, you're kind of praying for people who are, who are dead but not in heaven yet because they, they haven't hit the line. So... And, but, but then on all saints, they were remembering those who are in heaven. So both days have significance and people would have been going to the church. And so when Luther nails the 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, that was like, it wasn't like he was doing damage. It wasn't, it wasn't like if someone came to our, to our church and tried to nail through the glass and shatters the glass and they write on it with spray paint and graffiti. That's vandalism. Uh, did, was Luther vandalizing here? No, it was the common way of communicating, it was a, the, the modern day bulletin board was notices. You know, next to that is like the classic Robin Hood wanted posters, maybe. Um, whatever community notices, you put it on the church door. Why? Because everybody's gonna see it there. So he puts the 95 Theses, which is critiquing ultimately the, what is repentance. When, when, when our Lord Jesus Christ said to repent, he meant that the, the whole Christian life is to be one of repentance. That's, that's the first thesis. The entire Christian life is one of repentance. That is living, as we would say, living in a constant recognition of my sin and my inability to save myself and being turned to Jesus for forgiveness. Repeat, repeat, repeat. That's my entire life. The Catholic system at the time missed that point. And so that's, hence the 95 Theses. Luther is still Catholic at the time. And um, he, he, if, you, if you read the 95 Theses, there's plenty of places where we'd say, he wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't quite there yet. And so he's, that's 1517. He's still developing this for like three, really three years before he gets into a more a clear confession. The catechism's like over 10 years later. So he's really carefully thought through all the, um, all the application of the gospel to the church. Um, maybe that's enough. So on, so on All Saints Day, falling on November 1st, and All Hallows' Eve on October 31st, as a church, you always have to say, all right, we're gonna, we try to celebrate Reformation on the, the closest Sunday to Halloween, in our case, uh, or, or Reformation Day, 
And then the next Sunday is always All Saints Day. Yeah, Keith. So the Dia del Muerto. Is that what you're talking about? The Roman, the, the, uh, the Hispanic holiday? I have no idea. I just don't, I just don't know. I was, I'm not familiar, I mean, I'm familiar enough with a, I mean, it's a, good, it's a great day to get a cheap margarita at a Mexican restaurant. Uh, but I don't, I don't know. And I assume it has a lot of connection because ultimately, and this would be a, I mean, a stereotype in the same way that uh, you, you German, Midwest, Norwegian, you're probably Lutheran. That's a stereotype, right? Same with like a Hispanic person is gonna be Catholic. It's a stereotype, often true. You know, hence maybe there's, and I say that as a like pre, prerequisite maybe to, um, that's why I would, I would maybe suppose that that day, the day of the dead has some sort of a connection to Roman Catholic theology. Anybody else know? I have no idea. Should I know? I don't know. Dominic, any wisdom over there? Nothing from the bleachers. If your head elder doesn't like call you out on heresy, then you're good. <laughs> Let's jump into to Luke 13 with our remaining 19 minutes. So a woman with a disabling spirit. What I really want to get to is the narrow door on the back of your handout. So let's see if I can get there. Uh, we finished Luke 12 uh, in, from last week, and then we got two weeks ago, and then we get into Luke 13 with the parable of the fig tree and the, um, what's the first? Repent or perish. So the building had fallen on people, and Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish. And then he gives the parable of the fig tree and how um, if it doesn't bear fruit, cut it down, throw it away. And Jesus is teaching this necessity of repentance, but ultimately how he's the one who works repentance through the preaching of his word. That's last week. Today we jump into verse 10. Now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had, who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. That's redundant. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So there in your handout is a, a picture of a kind of a lady bent over there with some kind of physical uh, disability. And Jesus is there in the temple teaching on the Sabbath. So what was the purpose of the Sabbath? This is, a, this is kind of the key point that comes up that ends up taking off the rulers of the, of the uh, synagogue later. What's, what's supposed to be happening on the Sabbath? What, what is God doing on the Sabbath? 
So God rests on the Sabbath, on the first, on the first Sabbath. But so what's ultimately, what is, what is God doing to his people? I mean, already in that shift. What, so on the, God's having his people rest on the Sabbath. For, from what? For what? What's everything toward? Studying God's word. For what? Forgiveness and salvation. Repentance, forgiveness, life, all the stuff, all the buzzwords there. Exactly. So, I, so the, the Lord's setting apart a day for the entire people of Israel to turn away from their regular routines to hear God's word so that their sins would be forgiven, that life would go forth. So rest from the law, rest from, from all of your work that you would be healed and forgiven. So that's kind of in the background of what's happening. This came up in, I think, Luke 6. There was another Sabbath controversy with Jesus. And so this is kind of repeating that, that same theme. So Jesus is there. Note, he's teaching on the Sabbath. So he would have gone, I mean, normally you got the, the chief priests and stuff would have been teaching there, but he's honored. He has some kind of reputation amongst the, uh, the leaders in the synagogues. So they give him the floor. So he's teaching. And a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. So we find out later that it wasn't just like a disabling spirit. We might try to read, try to get, get the Bible off the hook and say, it meant that she, she had like a, her attitude was disabled. A, like he's got a, he's of good spirit. She had a disabled, a disabling spirit. No, it's demonic. And we find out later because in verse 16, you get Jesus specifically saying it's the devil. Satan. She had a disabling spirit for 18 years. So why would a spirit, a disabling spirit, we'll just, we'll put a name on it, the, the evil one. Why would he be interested in giving her a disabling spirit for 18 years? Let's pause and think about that. Does, does the devil, is he, does he want to just hurt our bodies as an end in itself? Of course not. What's the goal though? Destroy our faith. And what a, it's a very helpful reminder for us that we know that God allows the devil to do such things as he did to, to Job, to which we write to pray to God, Lord, have mercy on me. Remember me according to your steadfast love and do not let this evil befall me. Why are you doing this? to put it in the words of the psalmist, stop it, stop the devil, God. But we know that the devil does do it and the devil does it for, for this, not because he wants to hurt your body. He doesn't care about your body. He wants your body, he, your, your body is a means to hurt the soul. And this is our own, our own physical experiences go this way. When I, when, I fit, when I experience physical suffering, I start doubting the love of God. Because if God really loved me and he's all powerful, then why this physical experience? So, and this is, this is part, even part of today's uh, gospel lesson. So God is giving us this reality of faith that we know according to God's word, apart from our experience and our physical experience typically does not line up. And at some point, especially until Jesus comes back, there will be a day that you die. 
So the question will always be able to be asked, why did God allow me to die? And this, now everyone asks that question when someone dies prematurely, whatever they think that might be, like young. But when someone's lived a full life and they've, and they've suffered with a particular disease for ages, years and years, then we're able to let them go. We don't ask why necessarily in that. It's usually when it comes early, but I, I think, and all this, no matter when death comes, we're always going to be asking, why? Why did God allow that suffering, this death? Why? So the Christian response says, is, I, I don't know. So sin, because of sin, we have death in this life. Jesus came, though. This is the focus. Jesus came so that we wouldn't die eternally. Jesus came because, Jesus came and died because he knows we were going to be facing sufferings like this one. He knew that we were going to be facing suffering and death. That's why he came. Jesus never came so that he would take away our earthly sufferings. He came because of our earthly sufferings. That's this, just keep, keep going over that in your head. And then, as for the Christian, for those who love him, he's promised in Romans 8 to actually take up our suffering and use it toward his good. Uh, he working, working all things toward good for those who love him, which even if, even if the suffering ends in death, for the Christian, is that not good? I mean, it's hard to say that. We don't want that to be the case for us and our loved ones, but that is what he promises. And, and also with the parable of the sower, we get the seed that falls on rocky ground, that the seed, the seed springs up really quick and it dies because it says the sun scorched it. And Jesus says the sun is suffering. So for the, for the plant whose roots were not deep, the son of suffering squelched. Problem is, what does it take to grow a plant? Anybody with a seven-year-old understanding of photosynthesis? Sunshine is remarkably handy for trying to grow plants. It's the thing that actually killed the plant with no root. But there's in some way this, the sun, the suffering that we experience in this life, God takes it up and uses it toward good to actually strengthen our faith, to turn us away from our idols and have us clinging all the more to him. So this, for whatever reason, God allowed this disabling spirit on this lady, perhaps so that he could, I mean, it's been 18 years he's been allowing it, 18 years. Maybe it was all toward this moment. So she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over. So we see this time and again in Jesus's ministry. He cannot help himself. Every time he walks into a building and there's somebody sick, he goes right over to them and heals them. Whenever he sees death, every, every time Jesus encounters death, the person wakes up. It, it, it's like sickness, he just can't tolerate it. His heart just cries out. So he sees this lady, walks over and says, woman, you are freed, which is the same, it's the same Greek word for forgiveness, actually. It's forgive us our trespasses. You are freed, forgiven from your disability. He's, so he's casting out this disease, casting out this, this demon and forgiving her. Then he does this bizarre thing. He laid his hands on her and she is made straight. Just for us to be mindful of this, the healing, the healing physical touch of God. He doesn't, he, he, has, he has healed at times just by the spoken word at a distance, even healing those who aren't even close to him. But he chooses 
to heal through this physical touch. And he continues to do so today. So there's a, there's a significant, going back to where we started, like with, our, with the Lord's divine service, it's called divine because it's his, it's his service to us. It's called the Lord's Supper because it's his. We're singing with the angels, the archangels and all the company of heaven. We lie to magnify that. So we're actually confessing that God is present here physically with this healing touch of his holy touch that he's actually touching his body and blood to our lips and bringing forgiveness and salvation. That's the significance of what we call, maybe the cliche would be the real presence or the bodily presence of Jesus, that he's actually making himself present amongst us in our worship together. And through that, touching us with his holiness. The unholy is being touched by the holy. The walking dead are being made alive. The sinful are being made forgiven. Then our entire worship flows from that. The, the reason why we posture ourselves the, the way that we do, the way that, we, um, the way that the sanctuary is designed with the altar being in the middle, the reason why we, we try to discourage certain practices in the sanctuary, like, man, it's not ideal to, to be running. Uh, we, we don't bathe our miniature dachshunds in the baptismal font. Why? The, that baptismal font's set apart for a specific purpose. This room is set apart for a specific purpose. It's for God, it's for the, un, it's for the holy to touch the unholy, uh, to have our sins forgiven and life to go forth. So God working in this physical way, he continues still today in, 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 his, in, his, own, in his own way. And to be mindful as well that he works through the, in a vocation sense, he works through the hands of doctors and nurses and, and all the rest to, to, to still bring about healing today. So we, we recognize that for the doctor working, working in surgery, who went to medical school for all the years and did all the work and is, and is blessed with all these skills, even though they might not even believe in God, God is the one who gave them those skills and abilities. God is the one working through the hands of that surgeon to, to, the surgeon to do your triple bypass when the time comes, whatever, right? Um, so we recognize the healing hand of God in this world still today through the vocations of people in, in the medical vocations. The ruler of the synagogue gets mad. Interesting choice of words here. He was indignant, so he, he was angry, wasn't impressed. Jesus healed, I mean, imagine this. 18 years, she's been coming to this place for a while now. There, she's like, everyone knows this lady, and you, you get there, especially from the picture there, but she's like, it's a noticeable physical impairment to the point where it's, it's, it's hard to watch this lady walk. You wanna like help her. So she's, everyone knows her, 18 years, and Jesus heals her, this, this healing touch. He casts out the demon. And the, and the priest runs up, or the, the, guy, the guy in the synagogue, the chief priest or whatever, runs up. And instead of saying, cool, thank you, no, anything. But he says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. So who's he talking to? He's talking to the lady. So he's mad at Jesus, but he takes it out on the lady. You know, six days, you could have come on any of these other days. You come on the Sabbath, you come into my synagogue to be healed on this day. I mean, what? If you're watching this go down, you're like, what? What are you talking about? 
and not on the Sabbath, because he's focused on, this is what you see the, the kind of downfall of the Sabbath. The focus was on preserving the day rather than what, Jesus, what God is trying to accomplish on the Sabbath day, which is bringing forth life, bringing forth forgiveness. So Jesus brings life to this woman. And he makes the point later, he says, hey, what, you hypocrites, on the Sabbath, how many of you don't take your donkey to the water hole? You, do you not feed your animal? Do you not bring life on the Sabbath? Of course you do. So I'm giving, I'm giving life here. And by the way, like healing is not forgiven in the, in the Bible. It's not, like Jesus, it's not like we're looking at Jesus and saying, well, Jesus, uh, he, did, he did technically sin there, but, but he's off the hook because he's God. No, if Jesus sins, what's the problem? He can't be your perfect substitute. So it's very important to note that Jesus did not sin. He kept the law even in its corrupted form at this point, it wasn't forbidden to heal on the Sabbath. And it, what did he do? It wasn't like he performed surgery on scoliosis or something. He just says, be healed, lady. Mike. I don't know. I don't, I don't remember what the Greek said there. You say it, so you have the, 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 a lot of times it's the same word. The word for ruler is that same word for chief. Um, so maybe, it just, maybe the Greek doesn't, maybe it just says chief instead of the chief connected to the word for priest. That's the only thing I can say. But also the chief priest, we think of the chief priest being in the temple. Maybe that's the case. The high priests are at the temple. This is a synagogue. So this is like, you've got the, you've got the Missouri Synod Church there in St. Louis. The Purple Palace, we don't actually have such a thing, but you've got like the temple in Jerusalem. They have all these little preaching outposts all over Israel where the word is going forward, where Jesus is showing up, preaching and healing people. And so maybe it's whoever's in charge of that area. Getting really upset that this lady was healed, which I mean, put yourself in that, like, what a terrible, this lady, you've seen her for 18 years. She is painful to look at. And he heals her, and all he can say is, you could have come any of the other days. Now, in her mind, what's she thinking? I don't care what you're saying, dude. She's like, this is great. Um, and he calls her a daughter of Abraham. So, and ought not, so verse 16, and ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham. So what makes her a daughter of Abraham? Is that she was Jewish? No, so Jesus has made this this quite clear. What makes a person a child of Abraham is not genetics, but faith in the promise. So we are children of Abraham. For we have faith in the same Jesus. So all the, all the Old Testament people who have faith in the same Messiah, children of Abraham. So you can be made a child of Abraham as a Gentile, which most of us are. We're brought into this promise given over to the children of Abraham because we have faith in the same, the same Messiah, which is a reference to her faith. She's there in the synagogue, the child of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years. So we get this imprisonment, this physical torment worked by Satan toward attacking her faith. He loosed, uh, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. Uh, so he fulfills the Sabbath's purpose and brings life and blessing. Verse 17, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done. So shame comes into all those who were 
I mean, rightfully so. I mean, what a, what a what an embarrassing thing to watch. Jesus healed this guy, this lady, and then everybody get the, the, the chief, the rulers get worked up about it. Um, so what we'll, what we'll get into next week, we get it, he talks about the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, but we're, he's going to be contrasting this, the power of Satan's kingdom. So we've just seen Satan reigning over this lady with a disability for 18 years and this, ex, this external power. And now we're going to talk about what power looks like in the kingdom of God in, uh, in our parable next week. And then I'm really excited to talk about Jesus as a narrow door. Uh, so hopefully, Lord willing, we'll talk about all saints next week and then also finish chapter 13, maybe. Since I barely made a dent in our handout, if you'd take it with you if you want or bring it next week or stack it on the table on the way out. Any, any last minute questions? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the fact that we don't hear about it from whom? Like, so we don't usually recognize a lot of these things as, as the work of the devil or the work of demons. But we, biblically, we certainly would acknowledge that there's plenty of biblical reason to know that the devil is at work behind a lot of the physical disabilities and pains that we see today. Which, so um, for the Christian, we're, we're clinging to this promise that we, as we sang in our, in our hymn of the day today, that one little word can fell the devils, this word of Jesus. At the word of Jesus, the devil flees. And so what I'm always reminding people who, who are supposing the working of the devil is they're baptized. So to, to confess out loud what the Lord has promised you in your baptism. And then also we actually have a right of demon exorcism, which exorcism made popular by a movie. But the idea of casting out the devil is, is doing nothing other than bringing the word of God into a situation. And the word of God sanctifies, makes holy, casts out the devil. Now, we also read, recognize that it's possible for the, the work of the devil to be happening and also still physical, physical problems. That's why we don't say, like if there's a disease that I'm gonna do, an, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna bring the promises of, of God to this situation, but then also tell you not to go to the ER. So we recognize the work of God's hand in the vocations of the medical community. But we also, have, especially when it comes to in our, in our day and age where mental illness is huge, we have a member who, who owns like a, a, a um, counseling center and he said like suicides off the chart, child, child uh, the need for child counseling for depression and anxiety are off the charts. We know the working of the devil in those situations because that's what devil's after ultimately is our anxiety. So I would treat the anxiety from a spiritual standpoint first because that's something that the guy with the PhD or the doctorate who gives you the medicine for bipolar or whatever it is, you need to go see him too. I can do the theology part that he's not going to talk about, then I'm going to send you to him too. Because I'm like, very often it's both. Yeah, good question. The Lord be with you.